Well, we continue our knock-knock series thinking about this anyone. Anyone can be uprooted. And I'll show you a picture here of one of the most beautiful cities in Canada. You know what it is? Where it is? Where are we? We're in Quebec City. That's right, the place of my first experience of being uprooted and displaced. I was in grade eight. I was chosen with another girl from my class to represent my school on a school district trip to Quebec. Now, I was not a very confident young man in those days, and I knew no one on the trip, and I was already feeling very uncertain. And then we got to the hotel, and of all the kids on this trip, I was the only one who was not given a roommate. I was going to be all by myself in a room in Quebec City. I sat in the lobby with a few teachers as they tried to explain this to me, and I recall the emotions in me. They were just like boiling there, just below the surface. And, and uh, as everyone else is leaving to go on their first excursion into the old streets of Quebec City, I sat surrounded by these teachers. I didn't even know them. And I was crying. I was just bawling. The sense of loneliness and abandonment and not belonging. And I just wanted to go home and be with my mom. Yeah. Well, of course it's me that's left out. That was the overwhelming feeling. And now you have lots of empathy and sympathy and pity for little Phil. Finally, the teachers realized that this was probably not a good idea. You know the liabilities and all, I'm sure. And I was put in a room with two other guys that I did not know. And so I stood at the door as we knocked and the, the teacher uh, introduced me to another kid who had skin like I did. He was white and uh, a South Asian boy. And now I had grown up in rural Southwestern Ontario. I had, never, I had never had a conversation that I could remember with somebody from South Asia, from India. And it was all rather quite awkward, to be totally honest. And these two guys knew each other because they were from the same school. But then something happened. I entered and we began to watch the Toronto Blue Jays game. And we began to talk baseball and sports comparing notes about George Bell and Jesse Barfield and Tony Fernandez, and we started laughing, and I had found my people. Displacement, you know, it sucks. Finding your people, now that can make all the difference. Where's the first place you ever felt uprooted or displaced or abandoned, like you didn't belong or you were alone? and in uncharted territory, like life had taken this turn and everything you knew was in a different direction. So have a conversation right now. Just talk with a few others. Tell the place where that was, where that happened. How old were you when it happened? Were you 13 like I was, or were you somewhere else? And kids, uh, there's a world map that's available to you that was sent out to you or you have in your hand. Uh, color it. And chart where the people that you're talking with right now, uh, chart some of the different places they've come from or where this place of abandonment or loneliness, displacement happened. Take a few minutes to do that.
Uh, hopefully that begins some further conversations for you and kids, for you to hear the stories of others who've maybe had experiences like you felt, because we've all had those moments of feeling a bit of the hurt, because we live in a world of hurt, of displaced and uprooted people. And some of the uprooting that we can feel is, all, is, is even sometimes just an internal thing. It's something inside of us where we feel abandoned or uprooted or alone. You know, Canada is an interesting country, this one that we call home, because everyone has come from somewhere else at some point. Uh, First Nations got here first, and were given charge by the Creator to steward this part of the world. And many of us joined from other places. Uh, my people came to Canada in the mid-1800s from Europe, but some of you came perhaps earlier or later. And then Europeans displaced First Nations peoples, and now there, there can be fear among people of European heritage that other people are moving in and displacing them. In fact, just in the last week or so in our own city, a guy, a white man in our city went on a racist tirade against a South Asian security guard and yelled at him, you're not Canadian. Meanwhile, that white guy is in the big history of the entire world, part of a people group that came here from somewhere else. Oh, we have short and bad memories, don't we? Have you felt any of this? How have you participated in this displaced and uprooted world of hurt? Let's play a little game. I'm going to ask you some questions with multiple choice answers uh, based on the most recent statistics from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UNHCR. Are you ready to go? Kids, play along, and we'll see how many of you can get three out of three. We've got three trivia questions. Are you ready? Here's question number one. How many forcibly displaced people are there in the world today? Recent statistics. How many forcibly displaced people are there in the world today? 19.8 million, 107 million, 82.4 million, or 57.6 million? Do, 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 do. The answer is 82.4 million forcibly uprooted and displaced people in the world today. That's a lot of people. That's more than two Canadas. Question number two. 68% of displaced people come from only five countries. That's pretty sobering. Which of the following is not one of the five countries? Okay, we're looking for the negative here. Afghanistan, South Sudan, Syria, Myanmar, Guatemala, or Venezuela, which is not one of the five countries that make up 68% of the displaced and uprooted peoples in the world. You ready? The answer is Guatemala. There are many displaced from Guatemala as well, but they don't make the top five. Question number three. What ratio of people on earth have currently fled their homes because of conflict or persecution? Is it one out of every 2,000? Uh, sorry, is it one out of every 1,230 people? Is it a one out of every 95 people? Is it one out of every 550 people? Or is it one in every 210 people? What's the ratio of people on earth who have currently fled their home because of conflict or persecution? A, B, C, or D? Answer is... The answer is that the computer is not cooperating. There we go. One in 95 
people. In my work with the Peace and Reconciliation Network, my, uh, my, uh, my colleague, Johannes Reimer, who leads our network globally, is currently, like this week, in Greece, visiting the islands where refugees are coming from many of the parts of the world uh, through the Mediterranean Sea. This was his quote this week. I am in Greece on Samos right now visiting the refugee camps. I urgently need a Christian response to the crisis here. The human story is one of displacement and migration, often because of suffering. And even the more run-of-the-mill displacements like I felt as a 13-year-old can still produce pain. What is a Christian response to all this? Well, we live in a world of hurt, and whether you're a kid on a trip to Quebec City or a Syrian refugee dad that I once met in Surrey who showed me a picture of his two-year-old sleeping on the ground, her head on a rock in the desert in the middle of the night with a huge snake coiled near her head that he had to attack and get rid of, we can all feel something about what displacement is like. What do we do when we're the anyone who's uprooted? What do we do? What does God say to us? What does Jesus have to say to us as he knocks on the door of our lives and our church? Let's look at the story of Ruth the Moabite as we unpack this idea. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 begins with these words. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, uh, this is the days of the judges. It's somewhere around 1200 to 1300 BC. Uh, it's post-Joshua conquering the promised land and the family of Elimelech, leave the promised land for enemy territory. And that means the famine must have been very bad, that you would leave and go live where the enemy lives. They essentially retraced the steps of those who had um, crossed the promised land before, or crossed into the promised land. They basically return, and that devilish icon represents the kingdom of Moab. Now, Moab was a very interesting place. The Moabites had stood in the way of the Israelites getting into the promised land. They offered them no help. And Moses had instructed the people to have nothing to do with the Moabites. Uh, it goes back even further because the Moabites were actually family with the Israelites. And there's, there can be family conflicts, long, deep-seated family conflicts, can't they? In Genesis chapter 19, we discover that the Moabites come from the descendants of Lot. In fact, in one of the most bizarre stories in Scripture, they are the, they are, they, Moab was born to Lot through drunken incest with his own daughter. It's a bizarre story. Very, very sad and very honest about how messy human life can be. So the Moabites were this very strange, peculiar, relative family of the Israelites and the descendants of, uh, in the same line, uh, in, the, in the line of Abraham. And Abraham would give birth to, or his wife would give birth to Isaac, who gave birth to, to Jacob. And Jacob, 
was, the, was also known as Israel. So the Israelites come from that line, and the Moabites came from the nephew Lot, uh, from Abraham's nephew Lot. So Moses had given strong instructions because the Moabites did not help the Israelites when they were on their way from Egypt, coming this way. They came up on that, on the right side, the east side there, uh, through the kingdom of Moab, and the king of Moab would not help them. In fact, the people of Moab in, in the book of Numbers, uh, chapters 22, 23, 24, 25, hire somebody to curse the Israelites, to put a curse on them. And they worshipped the god Kamosh. Now, the god of Kamosh, one of the rituals uh, included human sacrifice. And so Moses had been very clear, you have nothing to do with these people. You don't intermarry with them. You don't do any of this thing. So the family of Elimelech is desperate and displaced for survival. And it's gotten so bad, apparently, on the west side there, that they even go and live with the Moabites, willing to go to those who were their historical enemies and even their haters. That's like a Kurd going to the Turks today, like a Yazidi going and fleeing to southern Iraq, like a Hindu Indian needing help from a Muslim Indian during COVID. And by the way, that actually happened, and there's some pretty inspiring stories. Or it's like a First Nations person seeking wildfire refuge in the home of a settler Christian family in Canada today. Hmm? Displacement produces desperation, which will make you do almost anything, including having your good upstanding Jewish boy marry Moabite girls. And this is what happens to Elimelech's family. And so in the land of Moab, their two sons, he and Naomi, his wife, their two sons marry two Moabite girls, Orpah and Ruth even though intermarriage in Deuteronomy chapter 7 was forbidden. So this book in the Hebrew Jewish Old Testament scriptures is named after a Gentile enemy. And the story for anyone facing desperate displacement and abandonment and uprooting is this story. And it's about the God of the nations not just Israel, but the God of the nations redeeming human brokenness for his purposes. And if you thought that the Old Testament was a book of rules, this might actually shock you because it's startlingly honest about what it means to be human and the revealing of who God is in the world through a people. This is the story of how God uses even the breaking of his law, how God is gracious. This is a book for anyone whose life is uprooted. So let's talk about the story of Ruth in four parts. Well, there's the uprooted to Moab part. We've started to unpack that. So this Jewish family is forced to Moab in famine, and they intermarry, breaking God's laws, and they clear, it's clearly a sign that they do not intend to return to Bethlehem, to Israel. But here's the sad thing. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, dies, and so do the two boys who had married these two Moabite girls. And so Naomi is faced with a hard decision. Do I stay or do I go? Does she return to her roots and encourage Orpah and, no and uh, Ruth to return to her people? What is she supposed to do? Well, that's what she does. She encourages those two girls to return to their own people, and Orpah agrees to do so. But Ruth decides differently. Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 but Ruth replied to Naomi, 
Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So that is the uprooted in Moab part, which leads to the uprooted to Bethlehem part. So this is a return for Naomi. She's going back to where she was born, probably where she came from. And people will remember her and they'll begin to question the family's loyalty, even their spirituality. Verse 19 says that when they got back to Bethlehem, uh, the whole town was stirred. Do you think it was all a party or do you ever think there was a little bit of like, hmm, here come those traitors? What do you think they were all thinking? And this is a completely uprooted new world, of course, for Ruth the Moabite. She has chosen to embrace the uproot with all that she is, with the location where she will live, the people that she will identify with, her identity, the God that she will worship, even the place where she will die and be buried. It's an indication that perhaps in Moab, Naomi had demonstrated a way of living her faith in Yahweh that was attractive to a girl raised worshiping the god Chemosh. So the uproot to Bethlehem puts these women in a perilous place, but a place where the law of Israel gave them some hope. Now here's what we have to understand. You have to understand that God's law for Israel, in uh, especially um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy provided hope. And there's an underlying hope in the cultural underpinnings of God's law, uh, even if the people's unfaithfulness to it is, is shaky, which clearly was the case in the days of the judges. Now, what were some of those laws that actually provided some hope for Naomi as she uprooted back to Bethlehem? Well, one was in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 to 10, is that you are not to glean all your harvest, but to leave some for the poor. And in Ruth 1.22, this is exactly what happens. They arrive just in time for the barley harvest, and they're about to experience that some people keeping that law to make sure there's stuff not all, that all the harvest is not gleaned. There's some left over for the poor. And some of you have gone and served at gleaners, an organization that essentially does this, takes food that is left over and uses it for others and for those who need it. So there was this law in Israel. And then in Leviticus 19.34, it said that the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That's the word of God to Israel. Love the foreigner. Treat them like yourself because you were once a slave, so you treat others the same. The law in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14 said, You shall not oppress the poor and the needy among you, but give them what they deserve, and when they work for you, you pay them. You do not withhold anything from the needy and the poor. In Deuteronomy 25, there was another law that said, If a husband dies, oh, this has happened in the story, right? Uh, Ruth's husband had died. If a husband dies, his wife is to be cared for by the extended family. And that woman is to be married to one of the members of the extended family. It was called the kinsman redeemer. So that the family name can continue. 
And Naomi hopes that there will be such an opportunity for Ruth back in Bethlehem, someone who will honor the word of the Lord in Bethlehem, which may be questionable, given that her own family was willing to unfaithfully disobey God's word to go to Moab to begin with. Ah, this is so messy. But the underpinnings of the law and the type of people that Israel was to be gave Naomi some hope that uprooting to Bethlehem might be good news after all. What's the third part? Well, they get rooted in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, there lived a relative of Elimelech. It says, actually, that he was a worthy man, <laughs> a man of standing. He's a worthy man in, cha in uh, chapter 2. Uh, he's named Boaz. His name means quickness. Must have been a fast runner, okay? Olympics and everything, right? And Naomi recognizes character. And so she sends uh, Ruth to Boaz's fields in hopes that he was a man who lived by the word of the Lord, by those laws that were given to Israel. And Boaz is this kind of man. And he actually has his own shady backstory because he, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, in the genealogy of Jesus, we learn that Boaz was the son of Rahab the prostitute who had hid the Israel spies in Jericho when the people of Israel crossed over under the leadership of Joshua. So Boaz is the son of a Gentile mother who was a prostitute. And so he knew that the richness of the word of God was something to be actually lived, not just known. And it's a dire lesson for those of us who think that faith might be something we just inherit. You don't inherit it. It might be passed to you, but you have to hold it and carry it. You have to make it yours. You have to live it. And he knows, Boaz knows, that Ruth is a Moabite. He repeats it several times in chapter 2. And he welcomes her as if she were an Israelite. He's living the law. Because he's a worthy man, he can recognize the worthiness in others. In chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, he calls her, uh, uh, what we see in, he, he, he uh, champions what Ruth has done for Naomi, and he speaks of Ruth's high character. In chapter 3, verse 11, he calls her a worthy woman. He goes beyond the law in letting her glean not just among what is left over, but among the best that's being harvested in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He goes all the way in being the kinsman redeemer of the desperate and the displaced and the uprooted. In Ruth chapter 4, Boaz marries Ruth. The uprooted are now family. They're established and rooted in Bethlehem. And this is all because they not just knew, but heard and lived by the word of the Lord. Which leads us to the fourth part of the story of Ruth, and that is the rooted in God's good news for all. The story of uprootedness ends with Boaz marrying Ruth, as I said, in Bethlehem. And there she becomes pregnant. And she gives birth to a son who the women of the community give the name Obed. It's an interesting name. It means worshiper. The women of the community give him the name Obed. Now remember, this is a restoring of all that Naomi, the grandma now of Obed, everything she lost. Ruth the Moabite 
and Boaz are making sure that someone else's family line remains strong in Israel. Their love is a gift to the whole community. And by the way, it's a gift to you. Now, how? Look at verses 18 to 22 of Ruth chapter 4. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon who married um, Rahab the prostitute was the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Obed becomes the grandfather of King David, who is given the promise of a kingly descendant whose kingdom will never end. And centuries later, Ruth and Boaz, of course, living around 1200 uh, BC. But about 1200 years later, there's another scandal that will emerge. A young woman becomes pregnant and she and her new husband, who is not the father, must also uproot from a place called Nazareth and make their way to Bethlehem because he, Joseph, was of the family line of David. Yes, this uprooted story of Ruth the Moabite and Boaz the Quick is a crucial part of God's purposeful plan on the way to Jesus Christ our Lord. God in our flesh who would suffer for the sin of Jews and Gentiles alike who rose from the dead and who invites you to follow him to hear his knock on the door of your life and find your uprooted, displaced, desperation becoming good news as well. In this world of hurt, anyone's like Ruth and you and I can live a life in even the smallest on certain corners of displacement. And we can still live a life that is deeply rooted, rooted in God's good news for all. And this is all, this is all, this coming of Jesus into the world is all because Ruth and Boaz not just knew, but heard and lived by the word of the Lord. So let's make two final observations for any one of us who are uprooted and displaced in whatever way that's being experienced by you or I. First of all, embrace the uproot. Embrace the uproot. Now, this is not easy. It can often be painful. But Ruth saw and heard something in the life of Naomi that she was willing to leave behind and throw all that she was into. We all know uprooting in some way. It's not fun, it's hard, it messes with your soul, but it can also be the avenue that God uses to get you where he needs to be, needs you to be. Embrace the uproot because God has a plan and he wants you involved in his plan. You may not see it yet. In fact, It may even bear fruit long after you are gone from this earth. But what is fighting the uprooting and the unwelcome realities 
earning you now. <laughs> you need to hear the voice of the Lord settling you, guiding you, speaking truth to you. Ruth and Boaz both lived by God's speech to them and Jesus is knocking on your door to embrace the uproot. Say, okay, Lord, what is it you're trying to do? How am I to be faithful here in even the smallest thing? Show me what it means. Speak to me, Lord, because I know you must have a plan. Embrace the uproot. And the second thing that we need to think about is to embrace the uprooted. This is what God does and it is what God has commanded. God embraces the uprooted, the desperate, the lonely, the discouraged, the displaced. But it is also what God has commanded. It's why churches have often been at the forefront of refugee settlement. KGF Church has done this in the past. To love the foreigner, the stranger, the uprooted, and even our enemy is to participate in the character and the nature of God. We were all foreigners, and from a, apart from his grace and salvation in Christ and the spirit of God in us, we were lost and alone and uprooted and displaced without hope in the world. Listen to me, please. There is no place in the kingdom of God for the rejection of those ethnically different from us. To do so is to live in contradiction to the revealed will of God. It is sin. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And God's people make space for anyone because we know that in our sin, we were also the anyone's. Before God's throne, there will be and there are those from every tribe and language and people and tongue. Their culture will not be obliterated before the king. They do not lose their distinctiveness. The cultures are not assimilated, but redeemed and rooted in God's glory and plan. Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies. If you love those who love you, what reward is there in that? He commands us. You see, this is not an issue of who or what you feel comfortable with. It's an issue of obedience to the voice of Jesus who is knocking. And it's an issue of whether or not we will be worthy men and women, boys and girls, like Ruth and Boaz, who were not just hearers of the word, but doers. So would you go out of your way this week, I wonder, to initiate a conversation of embrace, with someone who is different than you. Ask them their story. Ask them their uprooted story and just listen. Embrace the uprooted. It is what God has commanded. Let's pray together, friends, and then we'll set the table for our conversation together. Lord, thank you that there's no one that you don't seek out Thank you that when you look at this world and all its diversity and the different colors of skin, the different languages, different, different ways people do things, the different foods, which we all love, but Lord, you love the people. And some of us, Lord, have known an uprootedness and we've, we've faced the rejection of others because of, of who we are, maybe even the color of our skin. And others like me, I'm, I'm, I've not experienced that, Lord. 
But others of us have experienced a, a, a deeper displacement, something in our souls or like little boys in a hotel lobby. And we need somebody to embrace us too. So Lord, would you stir us and move us? Would you awaken our hearts and our minds? Let us hear the knock. Let us hear your voice and let us, let us embrace the uprooted. And some of us need to embrace the uprooting we're experiencing because you have a plan and we've been fighting you. Lord, help us to open our hands and just walk into this moment and say, okay, God, help me to be faithful right here, right now in this little thing that seems so weary and insignificant. Help us, Lord. And Jesus, may your kingdom come and your will be done through us. We pray in your mighty name. Amen. All right, you're going to discuss the question. Uh, here it is. How am I this anyone? How am I this uprooted person? And how, who are the uprooted anyones I can embrace? Those are the questions for discussion. May the Lord bless you today.